Welcome to this episode of ClearedCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with ClearanceJobs.com and William Henderson, president of the Federal Clearance Assistance Service. Bill has served as counterintelligence agent with the U.S. Army and in a variety of personnel security roles in the federal service and also founded FedCast in 2012. Throughout his career, he has seen a number of security clearance issues, and he's joining us today to talk about some of the most frequent problems he encounters. We want to focus specifically now on foreign influence, foreign involvement, overseas contacts type of questions. Thank you again so much for joining us today, Bill. Thank you, Lindy. I'm happy to be with you. And so one timely question that we literally have just gotten at Clearance Jobs relates to the issue of maybe contacts or foreign influence concerns in the country of Afghanistan. So again, a big heartache issue for a lot of service members who have translators or individuals they've worked with over there. I know a lot of service members are working actively to get folks they've served with back into the U.S. I know that there's a lot of Afghanistan refugees that people are trying to help and support country of origin matters when it comes to foreign influence. And obviously, Afghanistan has its own issues. Do you have any thoughts there, whether it's a service member, or a non-service member kind of engaging with folks they worked with or deployed with? How do those contacts need to be reported if you're someone who has a security clearance? Well, under the Security Executive Agent Directive number three, which is now just recently become applicable to uh, contractor employees, it had been applicable to all others for for quite a while. There is a requirement to report any continuing association with foreign nationals if there is a bond of affection obligation or intimate contact or exchange of personal information. There's also a requirement on the uh, standard form 86, the questionnaire for national security positions, to list people that an individual has sponsored to come to the United States. So if the service member, you know, has actually gone to that extent of, of sponsoring them to come to the U.S., then they would also have to report it on the SF-86. Merely associating with a foreign national is not a reportable item. But as I said, if there is a bond of affection, obligation, intimate contact, or exchange of personal information, then it's now a requirement. Yeah, that's a real, I mean, this question comes up a lot. And we've written about it at Clearance Jobs in terms of like, what is close and continuing contacts? So would you say like, if you're coming in contact with a foreign national in the course of, you know, maybe you attend church or are in a a club or organization with somebody who's a foreign national, that doesn't necessarily need to be reported, correct? No, it doesn't. Now, we're talking about two different things here. One is the reporting requirement within the standard form 86. And then the other one is the reporting requirement within Security Executive Agent Directive 3, and they're not worded the same. So the close and continuing contact are words that are particular to the standard form 86, not SE 83. SE 83, it only talks about bonds of affection, obligation, intimate contact, and such. Whereas the standard form 86 talks about both close and continuing contact and a bond of obligation, common interest, affection, or obligation. Slightly different wording for those two reporting requirements. The SF-86, person's only going to sum- submit one of those every five years or so. Under SEAD-3, anytime a relationship changes, 
or is established, a report has to be submitted to their security officer. Yeah. Welcome to the clearance process, friends. Clear as mud. That is always like a sticky point for me. And Bill, given your expertise in policy, you are my resident policy expert. Every time I find one of those nuanced policy questions and I don't know the answer, I always ask you, why do they form that language differently for things like that? Like, is there a purpose? We're talking about two different agencies that develop these criteria. They have their own staffers who come up with the wording. I was never very fond of question 19 on the standard form 86, the one about foreign contacts, because there is no official definition of what constitutes a bond of affection, obligation, common interest, or influence. There's no definition. And it's an opinion type question. It's the applicant's opinion of of whether or not there is such a bond that exists between them and the foreign national. The applicant has to decide for themselves when filling out the SF-86. The same sort of applies to the SE-83, although I believe the government takes a much broader interpretation of that question than than they do for the uh, standard Form 86. Like I said, there is no definition for what constitutes a bond. The close and continuing contact, well, continuing just means it's going to happen again in the future. And there's actually no definition for close. (laughs) So let your heart decide, security clearance holder or applicant. Would you be willing to give up classified information? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge onus on the applicant or the individual um, to just discern those questions. And that's why they need folks like you and me and Sean Bigley, who will join us in the second half of the program to help them address these questions because... There's a lot of nuance there, and especially, I think, for a new applicant coming in. I mean, that's why security officers have an important role, though, to train on those, because I don't know if the average security clearance holder, you know, they're not going to go around reading what Security Executive Agent Directive 3 reads on their downtime, but it's going to be up to kind of their agency organization to let them know what new reporting requirements are there. My other question that I had, thank you for addressing the the Afghanistan one, which is definitely a hot topic, but you'd also talked about one of the bigger problems you get that applicants come to you with in your role in advising folks is the issue of reporting foreign contacts in terms of character references. So if you have character references that are living in another country, is that going to be an issue? You see that often comes up with somebody who's been living or working in a foreign country for a few years. And I I honestly hadn't ever considered that nuance because I think of the character references was one of the really critical aspects of the SF-86. I would have a lot of fear listing a foreign national in one of those slots, but you said it's come up for you before. The problem has been presented to me in, in the context of, you know, question 16 on the SF-86 asks the applicant to list three character references. And, and in the question, it specifically says, you know, try to list people in the United States. So the problem is presented to me in that respect. The underlying problem is the applicants have been living outside the United States for an extended period of time. And that's why they're having difficulty finding a character reference in the United States. Because, you know, they let's say they've spent three years working in in Hong Kong or Thailand, Taiwan, you name it. These are typically people that applied for jobs with the Department of Commerce or the U.S. Trade Representative. When they present the question, I said, well, you know, try to find someone in the U.S. that can that can serve as a reference. But you're going to have a real problem because the U.S. government has to be able to do a background investigation on you. And there is a requirement to have coverage, at least for the last five years. And if there is a lack of coverage for a six-month period, I mean, complete lack of coverage for, for a six-month period within those five years, 
it's not a complete investigation. And likewise, if they can't interview a employment supervisor because the employment supervisor is in Taiwan, that's also a major shortcoming or gap in the case. And the only way then to grant a security clearance is with a deviation. So they're deviating from the standard requirements of a, of a background investigation in order to grant clearance. This has become more prevalent in recent years when they added information regarding exceptions to the adjudicative guidelines. Uh, previously, it was only a problem. It was only a, a thing that would come up with uh, sensitive compartmented information clearances. Going back as far as uh, the late '90s, there were provisions for exceptions to investigative requirements for SCI. And as I said, more recently, they incorporated information about exceptions in the National Security Adjudicative Guidelines. And these exceptions are deviations, which I just spoke about, conditions, and waivers. If you go to, I think it's uh, Appendix C of the National Security Adjudicated Guidelines, you can find out what the exact definition of these exceptions are. But a person that's, that's spent a good deal of their time outside the United States is going to have a real problem having a complete background investigation conducted because the U.S. cannot send investigators to other countries and run around and knock on doors. The other country isn't going to permit it. We can do some of it you know, on mil U.S. military installations outside the U.S. But other than that, we kind of rely on liaison with the foreign government to do some checks in those countries. <laughs> it's a real problem. Does the process for obtaining a security clearance just become too big of a hurdle? They just need to have more time in the U.S. before it's possible? Or are there other ways to kind of mitigate the lack of U.S.-based references? Well, you know, the applicant can influence it by listing only people that reside in the United States on their security form. For instance, if they work for a U.S. company in a foreign location and their supervisor has rotated back to the U.S. or a, a co-worker or a second-tier supervisor has moved back to the U.S., they can list that person living in the U.S. to be the employment verifier on the SF-86. The only time it's really possible to do a reasonable investigation is when the U.S. applicant was closely affiliated with a U.S. government agency in a, in a foreign country. I had a client who worked with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in a foreign country. But she had regular contact with the U.S. Embassy in that country and knew a lot of foreign service officers because of her, her work with the chamber. And so she was able to use U.S. State Department personnel as references, as character references, as work associates and such. I think the State Department is more able to conduct investigations of that type than other agencies. So, I mean, there are some workarounds, but it's pretty tough, you know, if you've spent the last five years in a foreign country and still expect the U.S. government to be able to do a complete background investigation on you. Nuance is key and the devil in the details. And again, making sure you read the forms carefully and trying to find a way to get someone in there who's maybe not just the right person, but the right person who will actually respond to is key. I think sometimes people fill out the form without any regard to the fact that somebody's going to have to contact that individual. And how is that process going to work? I mean, I think that can, you know, whether it's a foreign national or somebody in the US, if you list somebody on your form that's impossible to get a hold of or will never respond the phone call. That's an investigator's nightmare. Yeah. Th there's another th thing to consider is that, yeah, it's okay to use a foreign national to verify something, but 
a foreign national's recommendation that you should receive a security clearance is kind of worthless. Yeah, and in an investigation, you need a certain number of sources that are going to recommend you for a clearance. And they have, you know, to be able to have a valid recommendation, that recommendation has to come from a U.S. citizen. In fact, investigators are told not to interview people that they know are not U.S. citizens. Yeah, that's a good point. You can't expect somebody from another country to vouch for your, you know, willingness to, you know, protect U.S. national security information the same way. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. And the other side of that comes up for us frequently is like, you know, being antisocial is a severe security clearance penalty because there are a lot of people you have to list on the SF-86. Never having known your neighbors really comes back to haunt you when, when you're filling out the form. Well, I, I appreciate you again so much, Bill, for joining us again. Your institutional knowledge and expertise and, and awareness of all of these policy nuances is really key. And I just so appreciate your, your chatting with us. Thank you, Lindy. Anytime. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.